Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about the importance of system in RPGs. But before we get into all that, stuff's been happening. Well, for a start, you two went to Dragon Meat. Oh, it's the most expensive time of the year. <laughs> well, I didn't spend too much, Matt, but as always, you were walking around with laden with bags full of goodies. Yeah, this is this is a time when I pretty much blow my budget for the year. It's the one day when I go round like a kid in a sweet shop and go, hey, books, books, more books! Shit, can't carry them all. Fuck! <laughs> so we were there. It was the London Games Convention Dragon Meet. It's a one-day convention. This year, the trade hall was in one big hall downstairs, and the games were all in a separate room upstairs. It was well, pretty well organised, I thought, Matt. Yeah, there were a couple of little gripes I heard. Um, one of the big ones was that all the morning games and afternoon games went up for sign-up at the same time, in traditional sharpen your elbows and kick and shove anyone out of the way you can to get towards the sign-up board. Oh. So that if people arrive later, they found that all the morning and afternoon games had Yeah, gone. that's a drag, especially as it opened even earlier this year. Yeah, 8.30. I had to leave mm. home at four in the morning to get down there. No, you didn't have to, Matt. <laughs> to get, I, I barely got there in time. But, yeah, that sign-up system sounds like a nightmare. They should introduce a tombola system. Yes, they should come to Concrete Cow and learn how to do it. And did you meet any of our listeners while you were down there? Yeah, we ran into quite a few, right, Matt? Yeah, I've kind of lost count after a while. I was thinking, hey, people actually listen to us, and they're real, and they're out there. Then <laughs> we got chatting to quite a few people while we were on the Chaosium stand. Had a quite long chat with uh, Lewis Counter. Yeah, and I saw Tom Pleasant and Pender and Tor Nielsen. Yeah, so quite quite an array of people there. It was really, really weird finally putting names to faces. Yeah, it's always nice to meet listeners and uh, other uh, fans of the game. So, yeah, it was a good day. Excellent. And Paul and I had a fairly busy day yesterday doing a couple of recordings. Yes, these are recordings that we title Weird Whisperings. It's us reading short stories. Uh, we've done three now. One is already out. And that was the music of Eric's arm that Scott read last year. Yeah. And yesterday we recorded The Outsider and Pickman's Model. So we're trying basically to uh, do recordings of stories that we've talked about on the podcast, or at least the ones that are in the public domain. So that really pretty much means Lovecraft. And these stories are only available to backers on Patreon. If you want to find out more about that, then have a look at our website, blasphemoustomes.com. And if you are a Patreon backer, take a look at your email updates and you should see a link in there at some time uh, in the very near future uh, for the first of those recordings. And if you hold on to the end of the show, there'll be an excerpt from our latest reading. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week our word is indescribable. I somehow feel like I shouldn't really give an explanation of what this word means now. But it's an adjective. There's only one line here. Beyond description, too intense, extreme, etc. for words. 
And I think there's a an ongoing joke we've mentioned before that Lovecraft describes things as being indescribable or unmentionable or, or you know, it basically uses these terms to cop out of describing stuff. And I, I think that's about as far from the truth as you can get with Lovecraft, because particularly in his later works, he describes the hell out of things. Elder things in particular, great race of yith, yeah. pages of description given over to them. But I think one of the thi- one of his tricks is to say it's indescribable and unimaginable, and then he goes on to tell you what it's like. So it sets it up in your mind that this thing is beyond anything I can imagine. But now here's Lovecraft telling me what it's like, and I have to open up my imagination to to encompass this this new thing that previously I couldn't even conceive of. Yeah, and that is a big thing in the Cthulhu mythos, that these things are too alien or too vast for the human mind to grasp. And, yeah, I, I think, you know, in that, that respect, indescribable is a fairly good word to describe them. Because if something really is that alien, you don't have the frames of reference to actually describe it. And sometimes his descriptions include such things as half fish, half insect. And it's mm. like, well, yeah, OK, you've told me that, and my mind can jump to some ideas of what that might be like but you haven't really fully described it to me uh, was, what was it the line from uh, the first part of shoggoth on the roof is it half man half bat half octopus yes yeah. <laughs> and it comes out at a lovecraft score of 25 uses in his fiction and twice more as indescribably and so yes one of his more popular adjectives And now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word indescribable in his fiction. From the doom that came to Sarnath. Men whose eyes were wild with fear shrieked aloud at the sight within the king's banquet hall, where through the windows were seen no longer the forms of Nargis High and his nobles and slaves, but a horde of indescribable green voiceless things with bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips, and curious ears, things which danced horribly, bearing in their paws golden platters set with rubies and diamonds, containing uncouth flames. And from The Outsider As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable and unmentionable monstrosity which had, by its simple appearance, changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives." and from At the Mountains of Madness. It was a terrible, indescribable thing, vaster than any subway train, a shapeless congeries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, and with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter. now on to our main topic, System Matters. When we were doing our research for the Sorcerer episode, we did rediscover the System Does Matter essay that's in that book, in the Sorcerer Core Rulebook. And this was Ron Edwards's uh, thesis. Uh, 
Yeah, manifesto, I suppose. I, I'd say more thesis um, about whether a good GM could just do, you know, run any game with any system or whether the system was actually important. Because it then goes on to sort of break it down into three distinct areas of, of interest to the players and how different games might um, satisfy those three different interests. And it breaks it down into three areas one is gamist one is narrativist and one is simulationist and when you say areas i mean you know people have debated this for some time since then what these things actually apply to in the essay they really apply to types of game design that you know, your game should be designed to address one of these three styles of play but yeah you know, I, I think it's sort of evolved since then to be not even general preferences for players but perhaps preferences for a particular play session or not, not even an entire play session Edward's argument in the essay, it seems to me, is that a game system is at its best if it focuses on delivering one of these three criteria to its utmost. Um, and if it tries to do all three, that it's going to fail. So do you think you can explain for our listeners what these things actually mean? So the first one in the essay, he says, Gamist, this player is satisfied if the system includes a contest which he or she has a chance to win. So Gamist, to me, talks about the, the game aspect of a game, where the, the, the mechanics, the chance of winning and losing, the bit that we can identify, and when you're playing it, you feel like you're playing a game. Would that then encompass things like tactical play? So, oh, absolutely, yeah. So when you're thinking about, say, D&D 4th Edition, where a lot of that was about uh, tactics during combat. Very much so, and I think if we think of Call of Cthulhu, the game, I would say the gamest part is most essentially satisfied in the combat, because we change from telling a free-flowing story, we suddenly impose a structure on it. We have combat rounds, and we have, we're in a fight. It's my go, then it's your go. It's my go, then it's your go. And when you know, I was working on the, the combat rules, this was something that was in my mind. It's like, because really, combat, does it really work like that? If I'm a really good fighter, and I'm fighting an average Joe... It's not my go, his go, my go, his go. It's going to be my go, my go, my go. And the average guy is going to be on the floor. Yeah. Or me go. Or me go. Mm -hmm. But if there's a me go, it might... Anyway. Well, it, it does get me go, me go, your go. Yeah. With two attacks around. Thanks for clearing <laughs> that up, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so my point there is that that is a very abstract way of dealing with a combat that allows everybody an equal turn in the way that a game does. But what do you say that, that actually fits the idea of gamism? Because it doesn't seem like there's they're sort of tactical play there. You're not necessarily playing for advantage. I mean, you're playing for survival. There is one thing I can think that does land itself in addition to combat, and that's the rewards that you get at the end of an adventure. Because it makes you feel like, for instance, if one of the rewards is, well, you've killed this particular bad cultist that you didn't necessarily know was a cultist at a point in the scenario, gained 1d8 sandback. It's, yay, we did right! That was what we were supposed to do! Yeah, it, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it feels like a reward, it feels like a victory, and that is part of how I see a game working. Yeah. But you, you started off by saying there were three terms there. You've just defined what yeah. one was. So what about the other two? The second one, narrativist. In the essay, Ron writes, this player is satisfied if a role-playing session results in a good story. Okay, and what, what does story mean? 
I think reading the essay, what um, Ron Edwards seems to be getting at with story in this context or narrativist in this context seems to be less with what we might think of the story in a Call of Cthulhu module. You know, when you pick up the scenario, you could read it as a story. I think the focus is more on the player characters and their interactive story, their character goals, their character conflicts, the things that drive a more player character driven story. As we talked about with Sorcerer, we can have a story in a Call of Cthulhu game, but that can be that our players at one level are just kind of going along, following through the scenario. And I don't think that's what he's getting at. He's talking about a much more kind of proactive approach to storytelling where the focus is more on exploring the characters and their interaction with each other and with the scenario. Because I think this is one of the big misconceptions about this. I, a lot of the kickback I saw back in the early days of The Forge, when the, this definition came out, was people immediately saw the word story and thought, oh, you know, this means that you know, the GM is telling a story and you know, everyone else is just following that, which... Yeah, I, I, I think it's. Well, perhaps, I'm guessing they didn't read the essay. Yeah, but, but, uh, you know, th- this, this is one of the, the things that I make, think makes this, this discussion very, very difficult to have. And, you know, what, what made it so heated at the time, which is just defining what these terms mean. Even a simple word like story is so difficult because, you know, story will mean vastly different things to different people so i mean you think about a game of dnd a classic old school game of dnd so you're, you're going down a dungeon you're rolling dice you're killing monsters you're gathering treasure and you know there will be weird things that happen at the time you know some characters will die some characters will you know encounter magical traps that will leave them transformed or changed in some way you know at the end of it that will come together to something that people can tell as a story afterwards that doesn't mean that it was ever plotted out as a story um, I, I agree with that. It does seem that's more you're describing a location rather than describing no. a plot or a tale. Well, I'm, talking, mean- I'm, I'm talking about story as something that happens through play rather than something that is, is front-loaded into it, that, that story is emergent. Kind of the, end, the end result, yeah. almost like a session write-up. Yeah. So I'll be saying that in an old-school D&D scenario... There's a bunch of rooms, there's a bunch of monsters. The GM, when he reads that module, if it's quite a basic one, there's not a story there. There's just a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But then as he plays with the, the players, then a story develops. And I say exactly the same is true from what you've just said about the narrativist idea. By exploring the characters, exploring the themes uh, that the characters are set up to, to explore, then the story, again, is something that comes out through emergent play. It's, yeah. it's not something that's pre-decided. Yeah, I'd always looked upon story as being something that was, at least by my definition of it, as you said, everyone's going to have their own definition of what that word means, is the plot, the structure of events that have led up to the game starting, and yeah. that it is a running theme throughout the game, but, but not in a theme like, um, like in an abstract sense, like today we're going to talk about um, 
Oh, any insert anything here really like the impact of, of the economy on low class families and so on and that have a really kind of gritty kitchen sink drama not that kind yeah. of thing but um, no let, let's be specific here I mean when we're talking about addressing themes you know Sorcerer which we talked about specifically a few episodes ago is set up to talk about the theme what will you do for power yeah that is the premise of the game and when you play a sorcerer in the game this is what you're exploring and the story is what comes out of the exploration of that theme but I think the story can come out of your scenario that you've written, Matt. You know, if I read your scenario, it tells the story. Mm-hmm. But then when we play it, we tell a different story. Yeah, because it's so how you finish it off. Yeah, you know, that's equally a, a story. But it's a different story perhaps every time, depending on how you run the scenario. Hmm. And finally, we have simulationism, which in the essay reads as... This player is satisfied if the system creates a little pocket universe without fudging. So fudging? Without messing things up, without being inconsistent, without breaking the rules of that setting. So, you know, I'm in Call of Cthulhu today and I say, okay, we're going to go to Japan. I'm going to get in my jet copter and I'll be there in 30 minutes. It's like, well, no, because that doesn't fit in the setting. That's mm-hmm. you know, Where are you getting that from? Well, maybe if you're playing Pulp. If you're playing Pulp, then it's a different (laughs) setting. If you were playing Toon, the role-playing game based on cartoons, then simulationism is something quite different because you're simulating the world of cartoons. So simulationism isn't about being realistic. It's about being true to the setting in which you're playing. I would have thought that if you're going to apply a single definition to Call of Cthulhu, it would be simulationist, not gamist. That you're trying to simulate this imaginary world, you're trying to create verisimilitude, Um, you're trying to create perhaps the realistic world of the 1920s with all these weird horror elements in there, and you're trying to do it with fundamentally believable characters. They're not trying to necessarily win, they're not trying to power up, they're not out there to gather experience points and treasure, this is exploration. I think there is a strong element of simulationism in Call of Cthulhu in that it does go to great lengths, or many of the supplements and so on, do go to great lengths to have a sense of verisimilitude, as you said, as to be true to the real world and portray it accurately. Personally, I think that's of a lesser interest to me. Personally, I take it quite a lot of my scenarios and so on. I'm not too fussed when they're set or where they're set necessarily. And yes, I'll try to create a sense of realism for that setting, but it's not greater than the other um, considerations, I wouldn't say. But certainly I see, you know, a lot of people much more concerned with that. And we see that, you know, in the detail in uh, firearms and so on. Now, I was listening to Rachel Watches Star Trek just the other day, on which Chris Lackey and his wife, Rachel, talk about episodes of Star Trek. And Chris said something in the show which made me think that's perhaps a good illustration between narrativism and simulationism. And it is the classic episode, The Enemy Within, in which the transporter malfunctions and Kirk beams back onto ship and then second Kirk (laughs) beams onto the ship. And it's that classic Star Trek thing of having two versions of Captain Kirk. And the first one that beams up is the good captain, and the second one is the evil captain. And, you know, William Shatner has uh, great fun portraying both. But Chris Lackey made the point towards the end of the show that he felt that that kind of broke it a little bit for him, because it's like, well, why would the transporter 
well, it, it puts together a load of molecules from their the most basic elements into a human being. Why would it create a good one and an evil one? That just doesn't make sense. And I think if one thinks of it in a simulationist terms, it, it doesn't. I mean, mm. how, how can you rationalise that? that? That makes no sense. But in a narrativist approach, I haven't even considered that. It's just about the story. It's just about what that brings to allow the episode to explore various aspects of Kirk's character. Uh, there's a good few transporter malfunction episodes I can think of that are pretty good. So, to be honest, it's tech, weird shit can happen. There you go. But it's... It's that very specific thing of creating a good version and an evil version. I mean, in, in Star Trek The Motion Picture, we see them beam up and it goes wrong and they're like all distorted and, and die horribly. That's a malfunction, right? Mm-hmm. That seems true to what a transporter could do. But this is very clearly a narrative device to create a good and an evil one. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I get when you think of the Family Guy piss take where they get an evil Stewie as well. <laughs> But both of them, even with Kirk, they still get their shirt off halfway through the episode. <laughs> and he does get to shout, I'm Captain Kirk! Yeah, Lots no, of times. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> All right then, Paul, you specifically wanted to talk about GNS in this episode because you said that you thought it was an interesting model and, and it helped clarify some issues for you in, in game design. I'm sort of struggling to see how this shaped Call of Cthulhu because... You've talked very much about sort of the gamist aspects and the simulationist aspects of, of, of Call of Cthulhu now. So if you're going by the, the precepts of this essay, then Call of Cthulhu is an incoherent design, is, is broken. Do you agree with that? Well, that's a very loaded question. Mm. I don't agree with that statement because I don't agree with Ron Edwards' essay. The reason I wanted to, to focus on this, the GNS theory... I think it's a very good one. I think it's a very interesting one. And the way he sort of discusses different players having a different interest, some being more interested in the gaming aspect. And we see that with players saying, oh, I don't want to play Call of Cthulhu because you just go mad and die. You know, I want to get stuff and level up. And you know, that's a more gamist approach. So Ron Edwards says that to be the best, the game should focus on one of these. And that's where I, I would differ because I think... I enjoy all three aspects and I think a game can satisfy different aspects at different times. But I think having that model is a useful one to consider how the game satisfies those different elements. So how have you personally found it useful in, in game design? I think it's something that was at the back of my head when I was designing rules and I think it's just giving a consideration to as I said in combat it's a very kind of gamist thing so breaking it down and abstracting it of all of the Call of Cthulhu play it's more like a game I mean the simulationist aspect doesn't really need to my mind a lot of rules consideration it's something that is imposed by the, the setting in which you're playing so that's there and you know that's something that people strive to uh, incorporate those I mean that along with the the story the narrative aspect seem to very much kind of go hand in hand and the narrativist aspect I think that comes out in trying to push forward more exploration of people's characters so some of those background traits and the things that we now do with insanity to affect people's characters you know to to um to rewrite some of their background elements when they go insane. 
hopefully they sort of go to satisfy some of those three areas. Well, perhaps doing this a bit ask about face, we spent a lot of time talking about system. But I mean, what is system? It's the rules that are in the book, aren't they? Except, how many people do you know who play games strictly by the rules that are written in the book? Depends on the game. But I can think of a few where, well, at least I tried to stick to the letter of the law, hmm. and then some where, um, where I know that the players have gone, or the, the GMs have gone, this is a fantastic system, throw out the rule book and find a new rule system. But, but even where you do get a set of rules that work, I mean, let's say you're running Call of Cthulhu, you're, you're au fait with the rules, you understand how they work. You get to a certain stage where perhaps there's an unimportant combat coming up, but you you, know, you realise that playing through it in its entirety is probably going to take about 20 minutes. It's not really interesting enough to justify that. You might say, oh, OK, let, let's just make a quick opposed fighting brawl roll just to see how this plays out. That's not in the rules. So is that system? That's how to say how you use it. You're still acknowledging that that system is in place. You're just choosing not to use parts of it. But mm. you've got a set of rules that you've agreed to use at the table. You've you turned up, you're saying, we're playing Call of Cthulhu. At that stage, are you playing Call of Cthulhu? I'd say yes. Yeah, I'd very much say yes. I think you make adaptations. If we think of something else to parallel it with, such as playing Monopoly, not many people play Monopoly by the rules, mm. but loads of people play Monopoly. So I think you're playing the game, but part of playing any game is sometimes by agreement you socially decide to, you know, make an adaptation. Let's finish on the next round and just whoever's got the most points, let's say they're the winner. You know, that's let's make an adaptation. Also, a good analogy perhaps is if you pick up a tool and use it, how do you hold it? That ultimately you are, say, let's say you pick up a screwdriver, you pick up a knife or you pick up a gun, you're still using that tool. It's just that you give them to two or three different people or more. You'll find they hold it differently. You'll find they twist it differently. Maybe if it's a screwdriver, one person does a quarter turn, then readjusts it. Some other people do a whole half turn. Using a gun, for instance, someone might hold it up with two hands and fire, kind of like very police style. Someone will do it gangster style, holding it on its side and put a cap in your ass. There's a whole load of different ways you use that tool, but you are still using that tool. Hmm. Then, sort of taking that to a bit more of an extreme, you've got in particularly a lot of old games this this idea of rule zero, and you know pushing that one stage further, the you know the the, the maxim in a lot of OSR games, old school Renaissance games, rulings not rules. So the idea that the rules are incomplete and that the GM is there as a, a sort of arbiter, you know, rule zero basically says that the GM's word goes. That, you know, it is the GM's job to, you know, almost create system on the fly there. I think it's a different thing, though. Rule zero and rulings, not rules, are two different things. Yeah, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, but they're related. Yeah. This is something that's come up for me pretty recently while I've been preparing for the upcoming contingency convention, where I'm planning to run some more cult divinity lost. There's one thing that's really jarred with me, specifically in the character creation rules. Players have to have two separate disadvantages, yet the list for disadvantages is significantly shorter than advantages. I think loading people up with two just seems a bit unnecessary and clunky for me. So I've just made the decision that in my game for the characters I'm building, they've only got one. But that's a bit different. That's a house rule. So this is something that you've, you've decided ahead of time. Whereas the whole sort of rulings, not rules thing is that there are 
perhaps even deliberately, uh, you're missing things in the rules. So let's say that you know, you're playing an old school D&D game and you're trying to distract a shopkeeper while one of your other party members robs him blind. There aren't any skills in this game, or at least you know, very limited skills, and there isn't a, a social skill. There are no rules in there for how you distract a shopkeeper. How do you deal with that? Do you, you know, just sort of role play it? And you know, if you as a player convince me that the shopkeeper is distracted, then the shopkeeper is distracted. Or do you find some mechanical way of doing it? I'd very much go the former. Because if there aren't any things that would necessarily make sense, it's not you know, going to roll your appearance necessarily if you're going down a very vocal route to do that, to say, I'm going to distract the shopkeeper. Then I'd just let it play out. Um, oh, let's take another example then, that you, you've got a couple of player characters who have you know, perhaps fallen out. They're fighting on the edge of the cliff. You know, one of them says to the other, you know, I'm going to you know, try to push him off the cliff. Again, there's not necessarily any rules. You know, there's, uh, the, the combat system would handle perhaps grappling, but you know, certainly just hitting each other with weapons. Um, that seems a very big hole in the rules at that point, then. But but that's yeah. the point. The, the, these rules are there. You know, the, these holes are there deliberately. So the you as the GM come up with a way of handling that at the table. Well, that, yeah. That's the whole rulings, not rules thing. In, in which case, I'd say make it the equivalent of a fighting check and then the equivalent of a luck check from the other party afterwards. So you've got a degree of opposition there. So you've got player A tries to hit player, uh, player B so that player B goes off the, off the cliff. Player A makes their roll, then player B gets the luck roll to see, is that actually enough for me to lose my footing and do I then go over the edge? I think these things are done by consensus, though. Even if it's just the case that we're playing this game that's very light on rules and we know that by consensus, if we need a ruling, Matt, you're the GM, you'll decide how this is done. Or maybe you sort of throw it open to us and you say, well, how do you think we should handle this? Either way, it's a, a consensus thing. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely you get player buy-in as well. So and if, if they're happy with it, then you roll with it. I think what we're sort of building towards here is that all of these things are really part of system. That consensus agreement at the table, the freedom to make those rulings, uh, perhaps you know, a series of stock rulings or house rules, the fact that you may freeform some bits of it that would normally require mechanics, the fact that you may you know, take shortcuts, all used in conjunction with the rules that are written down in the book. This idea was espoused you know, many years ago by Vincent Baker in what he referred to as the Lumpley Principle, which he defined as system, including but not limited to the rules, is defined as the means by which the group agrees to imagined events during play. And I'd say the better the system, the better the, the rule set, the less one has to wing it and play it by ear and make shit up. Now, that's interesting. In because, terms of rules. Because, I mean, the, the whole OSR thing, you know, is, is very much a reaction to that. So, you know, it was a reaction to, you know, very rules-heavy versions of D&D and the fact that they were getting more and more prescriptive, more rules in there. And so the idea is there are these fruitful voids within the rules where you do make these rulings, where the rules don't cover all the events. And that is very much a design consideration of them. So, yeah, this is, this is an argument I've heard from a few people where they've played D&D and it says, I want to do this particular thing which in theory anyone should be able to do because it is something that the body is physically capable of doing but the rule says no you haven't got that feat it's impossible yeah. and I know I'd be frustrated as hell and it's one of the reasons I don't play D&D that much I'm more talking about Scott where you have to discard rules because you don't like them if they're specifically not there if there's no rule for swimming and it becomes important then the, the GM making a ruling I think yeah I I'm perhaps didn't express myself very clearly but I'm quite happy with 
GMs making up a ruling for a rule that isn't there if that's required. But if there are rules in the game that you're not happy with that don't work very well, then I think that's a sign of either a not very well designed system or a poor system choice for that GM. Probably advocate that's a bit strong because um, there are certain bits of a whole system that I like and some bits that I don't like within the same game. I guess though, once you get to a certain extent with this idea of ruling not rules and and you know the the GM is absolute authority as defined in Rule Zero, you get to the extent where I mean you've got these these couple of infamous quotes from Gary Gygax. I mean, what the hell does he know about role playing games? He said, "A DM only rolls dice because of the noise they make," and. The secret we should never let the game masters know is that they don't need any rules. We wouldn't have sold many rule books if he'd said that out openly, would he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why he said it was a secret mm-hmm. in the second one. But I've certainly heard of groups that get to the stage where they are pretty much free-forming and bypassing the rules. Do, do, do you think there's anything to this? Yeah, I think so. I think that some groups like doing that. Some groups like just improvising a story... And not even using any mechanics at all. They still ostensibly would say they use, they're playing Call of Cthulhu or something like that, where you can play a whole session and if you want to, you can play it without rolling any dice, without even looking at your character sheet, potentially. Are you really still playing the system? You're playing a story. I'm not sure you're playing the system anymore. Let's try to get a better understanding of how mechanics shape play by looking at some specific examples. We're going to take a scenario seed that we've come up between us with and then apply that scenario to, or rather apply different systems to that scenario and see how they'd be fundamentally very different. Think of it almost like as having the same story but applied with different directors. I'm sure Jodorowsky's Dune would be very different. Well, what is very different to David (laughs) Lynch's Dune. We'll keep a bit of focus here. We'll generally stick with Cthulhu variants, but we'll also add Lamentations of the Flame Princess on there because, well, A, it's something we've talked about to some extent on the show before, and B, because I think it's a significantly different style of play, but uses a lot of the same scenario structure as perhaps Call of Cthulhu, and so we can use the same premise and just see how different the experience will be. So the simple scenario seed we have involves the Mego, of course, a gold mine in the hills is rumoured to be haunted. There's Mego in them hills! <laughs> <laughs> a party of hunters in the area has disappeared after coming across said mine. Their families have offered a reward to find them and learn the truth about what happened. Enter the investigators. Victims. So I'd argue that out of all the games that we're going to talk about here... Call of Cthulhu is the one that would least alter this basic premise. There would be considerations. So, I mean, let's take a couple of basic ones. Call of Cthulhu investigators are comparatively fragile. But on the other hand, combat is a fairly mechanically intensive part of the game. So there's always the idea that there will be combats in a game, but they're not necessarily meant to be big, defining things, or at least not, not, not regular features of the game. So you wouldn't see it as an ongoing battle through the mine, killing wave after wave of Mego. You might have some big climactic thing where the investigators would confront some Mego and perhaps attempt to rescue a miner who's... You're having their brain removed and put in a jar. Do you think Call of Cthulhu investigators are more fragile than first-level Lamentations characters? I'm not sure they are. Depends on what class as well. Because if you're playing a level one specialist, yeah, you might be fairly 
uh, fairly and gooey. And magic users, they get one or two spells which might not be much use. And beyond that, not very powerful. This is why you have a group of level one fighters go down there. Then they skewer the Mego and run back out again. Usually taking all the loot with them and selling it for gold. Woohoo, XP! And of course, the other aspect of Call of Cthulhu that's going to shape this is sanity. So you, you will get unexpected things happening as, as characters see horrible events or monsters in the mine and perhaps have bouts of insanity. This will add a degree of unpredictability to what happens. Yeah, definitely. I think the insanity mechanics lead to unexpected twists of story. There's a couple of differences I could see how they react to um, sanity loss as well. In this, you've got a one in three chance if they fail their um, their sanity roll that they're going to end up having a bout of madness. In Call of Cthulhu, I'd see that's pretty much where you fade to black, that the characters run off down the mine, gets lost in the dark, or just run straight into another Mego waiting for them. In Pulp, it's suddenly, hey, I get to use Pulp talents! And then you, they start kicking the Mego in the face, they're ripping them limb from limb with their bare hands, and, yeah, the, the Mego are on the receiving end of a very bad day. Well, I don't know that in Call of Cthulhu, a bout of madness is necessarily a fade to black. It can be just a few rounds of different behaviour, but it doesn't necessarily take the character out. But you're right, I mean, in Pulp, yeah. It yeah. opens up some, definitely opens up some new possibilities. Yeah, it's just suddenly unleash a cannibal pass on them. <laughs> Another aspect of Call of Cthulhu that would differentiate it in play here from, say, uh, Cthulhu Dark or Trail of Cthulhu is the fact that Call of Cthulhu investigators won't necessarily automatically find clues. And this can lead to, you know, branching, perhaps improvised events where you were expecting them to go in and make that spot-hidden roll. If it's something really, really important, maybe you wouldn't have asked them to make a spot-hidden roll in the first place. But if it's something that perhaps is is tangential but interesting, you know, like the chance to find a bit of Mego equipment, then they might overlook that, whereas, you know, in Trail of Cthulhu, they might automatically have found that because, you know, it's a clue. But if in Call of Cthulhu you've got the concept of obvious clues, so within the scenario those things wouldn't be asked for roles. Oh, but but I guess the point I'm making is in something like Trail of Cthulhu or Cthulhu Dark, that even the non-obvious ones, if the investigators you know, have got the right skills and want to find something, they will. But um, that depends whether they spend the point in Trail. Yeah, that's why I said if they want to. So it's still a they may, they may not. But that comes down to a matter of player choice rather than the randomness of the dice. So that possibility of failure then introduces more potential branches. It means that the gameplay becomes less predictable. Where you get these failures coming in, sometimes the actions that Call of Cthulhu investigators take to perhaps pursue a clue through other means, not an obvious clue, but you mm. know, a side clue, they fail to find something that they were looking through or through one means. Maybe they, you know, they're trying to find out the history of the mine. They decide to go into the town newspaper archive and see whether there's any stories about the mine. Perhaps they completely scrub a roll and really end up alienating the editor of the newspaper and he chases them out with a brush. That then adds the possibilities for story there in that they might then decide to break into the newspaper offices at night and find this out. Or they may decide that, oh, actually, this hasn't worked. Let's go around all the taverns you know, and ask all the old local drunks what their stories are. And we end up with these unexpected scenes that we weren't necessarily anticipating. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you've got automatic successes, these bits of emergent play don't happen usually. I could see a very distinct and very poignant difference between two of the 
game systems on our list, which is Cthulhu Dark and Lamentations. Cthulhu Dark, without being derogatory, I can see it's been almost a bit like a, um episode of Scooby-Doo. It's running away from the monster all the time. Because the minute you say, I want to try and fight you, dead. But whereas Lamentations is, bring on the fight! I want their gold! <laughs> I guess the difference in play you'd had there... Well, it'd be twofold. One is, let's say, you know, you, you're sneaking around the dungeon or you do encounter Amigo, and then fighting it is an option, yes. In Cthulhu Dark, you fight that Amigo, you die. Yeah, which but is one, mainly, that's why I was going with the that extreme result, because I think if you put characters in that kind of situation that with Lamentations, they are going to go in there, they are going to be more tooled up, that fighting is an option for them, whereas yeah. in Cthulhu Dark, it just ain't. But even then, I mean, they might decide to try to avoid it. I mean, they might decide to try to sneak past or find a hidden door or just generally avoid the Mego. Because in Lamentations, you're not rewarded experience point-wise for killing monsters. What you're rewarded for is gaining treasure. So you might be motivated by trying to sneak past all these Mego, get to the hidden parts of the mine, see whether they've got anything valuable there and nick it. Nothing Amigo carcass could be valuable up until the point it disappears. <laughs> yes. Go back to town and sell it as a, uh, hey, look what freakish thing I picked out of them thy heroes. Yeah, but on the other hand, if you get some of their weaponry or their web armour or something like that, oh, that, that, yeah. that, that could be really valuable. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also as a mine. I mean, if they've been mining precious metals down there, hell, yeah, yeah it, it, run off with a bag full of that. It is what they're known for, after all. Mm. Something I've heard some people say is the more simple the system is, the better it is. And, you know, I've kind of questioned that because if we wanted the simplest system, I'd just toss a coin each time to make a decision whether I did something or didn't. Is that the best system? I would say not really. Comparing Call of Cthulhu with Pulp Cthulhu... I mean, Pulp Cthulhu has, I would say, more rules because it has pop talents and so on. Is it more complex to play, though? Not really. In play, it's, it's no more complex, I wouldn't say. No. Would you, Matt? There's a few more added options in Pulp, and I think it's, it can be considered a little more complicated keeping track of all those extra options that you have and the instances in which they then become available to you. A bit like your insane talents, that they become active when you go and have a bout of madness, for example. Well, I suppose there's a difference to be made here, but between complexity and things being complicated. What I'm kind of thinking is some systems can have lots and lots of rules and quite a big fat rule book, D&D 5th Ed, I'm kind of looking at you. But actually, the play of it, in my experience, is pretty simple. Um, all, they yeah. all mesh together as a fairly unified core rule system, which is really pretty light. And there's lots of little modules that link into that, but they don't like totally change what you're doing. There's not like loads of different systems to learn within that one game. So it's a fairly, in my experience, fairly simple game to play, but there are quite a lot of rules. On the other hand, I think, particularly with something like D&D, that a lot of that stuff is front-loaded. So a lot of it is player-facing for a start. So these are options that you choose during character creation. They're not even quite often things that the, the GM or DM necessarily needs to track. I can't necessarily talk about D&D 5th edition here, but I mean, I, I used to DM 4th edition. And 4th edition, you know, looked comparatively complex. But as a DM, it was very, very simple to run. Because all of the special rules and so on were player abilities and if you trusted the players to run those fairly you as the dm didn't even have to know how they worked i think this also introduces something else that's you know radically different between systems which is the amount of investment that the player has to make in creating that character 
Call of Cthulhu and Trail of Cthulhu, it takes a little while to create a character, a bit longer in Pulp Cthulhu, because you've got a, you know additional options to put on top. I find it takes me half an hour to an hour to create a trail character. If I'm using the quickfire rules, maybe about 20 minutes, you know, half an hour if I'm really thinking about options for a Call of Cthulhu character. That but seems quite a long time for the quickfire, but... It's because I put quite a lot of thought into the backstory elements and, and so oh, on. Oh, sure, yeah. If you're skipping over all that, you can create a character much, much faster than that. But you compare that to, say, yeah, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, you can probably put together a character in about 10 minutes. Cthulhu Dark, you can create a character in two minutes or less. You, mm. you need to come up with a name and an occupation. And I think one way that that really informs play, maybe not directly, but certainly subconsciously, is that players might be more protective of characters where they've had to put a lot of work into creating them. You know, if I've spent an hour creating a character and he or she dies in the first 10 minutes, I'll be pissed off. If I've spent two minutes creating a character and they die in the first 10 minutes, I'll, I'll create another character. But how many games do you play where you can just get killed off and then bring in another character so quickly? It's quite an unusual thing, I think. It is. I, I've certainly seen people play some old school D&D games like that. Yeah. Um, if you can create that character quickly, it's sort of, you know, the, the people will perhaps move on to the next room of the dungeon. So, you know, the person whose character died will sit there quickly, roll up a new character. And then the DM will say something like, oh, and, you know, in the next room you find a cage and there's someone locked in there and, and you rescue them. And, you know, it's suddenly a thunder the barbarian. <laughs> I think another big difference in character sheet you've got in front of you and how it affects play is through some games where you develop your character. So, I mean, you talked about not wanting your character to die because you'd spent an hour making it, but imagine you've been playing that character for five years. Well, I would say in a D&D game, because you've now like level, I don't know, level 20 and you've got loads of magic items and loads of great stuff and you've got a castle and you, yeah, you're really well established. I'd be happy for that character to get killed, but want it to be a pretty epic battle and be a great story. If it just happened routinely, you know, it'd be pretty upsetting, perhaps. With a Cthulhu-esque story, I think there's that built-in expectation that you're on a kind of a downward spiral. And we don't yeah. really tend to see a character that will be played for that long. There may be people that do that, but I think they're outliers. I think for most people, characters might last a whole campaign, but that's fairly notable even if you achieve that which might be a year at most but even then i think you know in the in the systems we're talking about in the specific scenario premise we've got here there's i think if i were playing this there's a fairly fundamental difference in my expectations if i were playing you know even call of cthulhu or trail of cthulhu as opposed to cthulhu dark because Cthulhu Dark tends to be one shot, so it's very rare to see a campaign, it's very rare to see a character go on for more than one session. So I tend to see any game of Cthulhu Dark as playing that character to destruction in that game. I, you know, I, I expect to have you know, that character either die or go insane by the end of that session. I don't necessarily expect that with Call of Cthulhu. What, in a one-shot? I mean, it's, it's a risk. We haven't it's pretty likely yeah. in a one-shot, though. But yeah, we haven't established necessarily that this is a one-shot. But even if it is, no, I, I, I'd say... I've played your game, Scott, your yeah. one-shots. <laughs> I don't recall surviving that many of them. But no, they, they usually are a few survivors, a few people to you know go on and tell the tale. And there wouldn't I, be if you played it with Cthulhu Dark? All not, not as many. Uh, well, certainly I, I as a player would have a very different expectation going into that game. 
Because I see that as a character I'm never, ever going to use again. But if I create a character for a, a Call of Cthulhu one-shot, if it's not a pre-gen, if it's not something that's tailored to that game, then this is a character I might reuse. And if I've put half an hour into creating the character, I probably want to reuse it. So if I were running a Call of Cthulhu one-off and we did create a character at the start of it, you'd want to use that character in another game? Yeah, I mean, really? let, let, I mean, let's let's take some examples. I mean, you know, when you were playtesting your World War Cthulhu uh, scenario for Europe Ablaze, mm. I can't remember whether we created characters for that, but let's say argument, you know, for argument's sure. sake, if I had, and there'd be the prospect of playing more World War Cthulhu later, I'd have wanted to keep that character and use it again, particularly if it turned out to be a character I liked. So I wouldn't necessarily have gone into that looking at it as a disposable asset. I, I might have played in a slightly more defensive way or cautious way, but if it's a low investment uh, character, like a Cthulhu Dark character, yeah, I go in and plate destruction. I think that can be the case. I mean, I think it very much depends on the individual. Some people will create a character and they're very protective of it or they're very free with it. I can think investment comes in a lot of different forms as well. I remember spending a long time on building a PC for a game of Werewolf the Forsaken. I had a lot of fun with it. I tried to include references to as many Warren Zevon songs as I possibly could in its background. Um, I think I ended up with about 18 songs that I got uh, quotes from in there. And 18 Chinese menus in your hand. That I turned up <laughs> for the first session after going to Chinatown with a menu. Um, it, it was a LARP, so I actually stopped off um, in Chinatown on the way down on the tube, picked up a whole load of menus and then walked off to the game. <laughs> but I then played said game and thought, yeah, I've got a great character. No place for it in this game, though. There was just nothing happening. There was nothing that um, I could interact with and I got bored very quickly and put it away and never went back. I think it's what you do with that character in play that actually gives you an investment. It's the story that you get involved with that then means how invested are you with it, what good memories have you got attached with it, what achievements have you done with it, rather than just, I've spent three hours on this PC, therefore I'll get more investment with that during character gen than I have with one that I came up with in two minutes. But do you feel that the, the system of that game had an effect on that, or was it just the scenario or whatever, the setting, that it, didn't really work? It was a scenario in that sense. Right, yeah. yeah. One thing we've been dancing around but haven't really dug into yet is the fact that games very often have a focus that is shaped by the mechanics. We've been talking about five games here. Call of Cthulhu, Pop Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu, Cthulhu Dark and Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Yeah, I'd say that you know there are similarities in the focus but differences. All of them, I think, have some degree of investigation, but whether or not the focus of the game is on investigation. I mean, this is something we've talked about before. What do you say Call of Cthulhu is inherently an investigative game? No, I wouldn't. And I'd argue about the whole premise of games having a focus. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but Trail of Cthulhu, for example, is all about investigation. I mean, mechanically, that game is entirely focused on investigation. So you've got two sets of, of abilities in there you've got your ordinary abilities which handle you know things like uh, mechanical repair combat athletics but then you've got even more focus given over to investigative abilities and there are different rules for how they work uh, unlike the the ordinary abilities standard abilities they work automatically they're much more powerful they cost more when you've got a, a trail of cthulhu scenario if you're using a pre-published one, it is a series of scenes, a series of locations, each one of which has got you know triggers for those abilities. You know, you, you go in, you, know, you you activate such and such an ability, you get clue X. 
So that that is an investigative game. I get it's got a bracket of skills called investigative skills. I mean, the game that we played with you at the club, the chapter of Poison Tree, was it primarily investigative? We did stuff. There was in some investigation. I'm playing a D&D game now. There's some investigation. Was it more investigation? I don't know. You see, one thing that I very deliberately didn't do when we played Poison Tree at the club was use one of the mechanics in uh, Trail of Cthulhu, which might have made a difference there. Because, yeah, you as a group didn't play it in a particularly investigative way. There were lots of NPCs and clues and so on that you you actively avoided. All shot. Yeah, and and um, yeah, basically you've you know, in in trail you've got this carrot stick thing, whereby you can either grant stability or take stability away from players for not following their drives to do investigations. And you know, if I'd been running it to the letter of the book, then I would have punished the fuck out of the bunch of you for for not actually investigating because it's an investigative game. You have agreed to do this investigation by playing the game. By not doing that. You know, the game actually has a mechanic for me to punish you for not playing it properly. But how effective is that punishment? I mean, when you say punishment, any game where you're punishing your players, really, yeah. I mean, I've heard that phrase from other people. Yeah, I've also kind of, unless it's been a while since I've read that particular part of the book, I thought it was more interacting with the story that was going on. And we sure as hell were interacting with it, even if it was staring down the barrel of a gun at it. We were definitely interacting with it. I actually, you know, it's interesting. In a lot of cases, no, you weren't. That, you know, there, there were scenes and locations and NPCs that came up and and had information there that was actually fairly vital. And as soon as you saw the NPCs from a distance or whatever, you you just run away. Um, That's just you make scary NPCs. <laughs> there was very little attempt at investigation. But I mean, we were playing our characters as we saw them. If we judged that they would run away from something. I mean, what should we have done to sort of think, oh, no, Scott and the system want us to do this, we better go and do it? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not arguing that. And, you know, this is why I didn't apply the rule, but the rule is there that, you know... But would you, that have made any difference? What's the, what's the rule? You you take a, a stability point. Yes. Yeah, it's like you, four, you, four you, point I mean, hit or something. It's, it's, it's quite a lot of stability. So, and, for example, in Call of Cthulhu, you know, I go, and, I go and go down in the cellar and, you know, I lose a load of sanity... But I can sort of think, oh, if I go down the cellar, I might lose a bunch of sanity here. But then I think, well, actually, no, I, that seems like a pretty fun thing to do. So is it necessarily a penalty that's going to shape my action? No, I don't think it is. I mean, if you took stability from me, I don't think it would have necessarily changed what I did. No, I, I can think of one instance in a um, trail scenario I ran at a convention a few years ago. There was one of the characters who was pretty much like the main investigator in the party. They got all the pieces of the puzzle on the table and went, fuck this, I'm off. Because they realised that if they went and followed it through, there was a good chance of them dying. And at that point they went, nope, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm not a hero. And they turned and walked away. And did you penalise them in stability? With a, a four-point stability hit, which is what the book suggests. At which point she said, fine, I don't care, I'm still going. So it didn't shape behaviour whatsoever? No. No, but I think it might have bit more in a campaign. Again, you know, if you've got that investment in the character, if you're expecting to play it over a, a, a period of time, if that four-point stability hit hadn't just been a one-off thing, if every time you'd, you'd sort of walked away from an investigative situation, which happened a number of times during that, that short campaign, your characters, you know, would have been at minus stability all the way through pretty much 
it's not like we didn't lose stability anyway. So. Oh no, no, but but you would have been teetering. More. You would have been teetering on the edge of permanent insanity, uh, if not driven permanently insane by it. But I think we we're all yes. People will react differently to these things, but I think my perception would have been well, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Mm. I think. Are you likewise, Matt? Or? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't see that it makes that much of a severe enough impact. I mean, the, going back, I mean, to, to the initial point. This is what makes Trail focused on investigation. I mean, it doesn't doesn't have a lot of rules for other stuff. Uh, you know, there's there's a fairly basic combat system. Most of the other rules are pretty light, but it is about the investigation. That that's that's where most of the mechanics take place. You know, the idea is that you will go from scene to scene, gathering clues and then deciding what to do with them. So based on all this discussion we've had, going back to this original scenario premise we had, with these five systems we've talked about, how do you think that scenario would go? Or how do you think it would be shaped by the fact that you were playing that system? Well, looking at Call of Cthulhu, I'd probably expect to end up as the brain in a jar. Uh, that would be the, the, uh, the most happy outcome I would be expecting uh-huh. from that scenario. But, but what about Call of Cthulhu would make you expect that? You've got as good a degree of success or chance of success as you have a chance of failure, that it very much is determined by what you do and then everything else that reacts to that. But generally, with that kind of antagonist in a very enclosed environment, the odds are, in my eyes, stacked a bit more against you. So therefore, I say, you're probably going to end up as a brain in a jar. With Pulp Cthulhu, it's more likely you'll walk into the situation, beat the shit out of the Mego, take away the tech and make a death ray very much you have the upper hand against that kind of lower-level antagonist. You may end up as a brain in a jar, but now you'll be in some kind of big robot suit (laughs) controlling it as a new pulp character, smashing things and charging around the planet. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Robo-investigator. Yeah, there you go. As long as you've got a weird scientist in the party, otherwise you're screwed. I mean, we're kind of illustrating an extreme end of pulp there, we (laughs) should point out. Yeah, mark out of pulp. (laughs) Yes. With Trail of Cthulhu, I think it would be more on the investigative side. You're more likely to be the one that goes around, as Scott mentioned, going uh, around town, finding all the information you can about the mine, getting pushed out of places with a broom. And then when you, if you do, uh, or are lucky enough to get down there and survive, you'd be the one that takes away all the tech and starts to examine it and trying to find the mo- bigger motivation, the bigger picture of what's going on there. Whereas I think the other two, maybe you're trapped in that, well, not trapped in the moment, but you're more focused in the moment of the immediacy of what's going on. But Trail would be looking at the wider picture because you get yeah. more information with that investigative angle. Yeah. With Cthulhu Dark, you're dead. <laughs> it's you, you simply, the moment you step in that mine, you're gone. Because you've got that very claustrophobic atmosphere you've got the environment and the antagonist working against you the odds are so stacked against you that you just walk into that scenario as pretty much as scott said knowing that this is a disposable character you are going to die and lamentations of the flame princess yeah hope you got a fighter in the party because if you do you're getting a whole lot of gold out of that go in there steal the tech run away with it and live happily ever after or maybe one level up anyway but the families, think of the families. They want the gold. Well, they've given you gold to find out what the hell happened to them. Oh, there you fair go. Enough. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd see things along a similar line, but perhaps with a few differences. So, yeah, with Call of Cthulhu, I think one of the big differences there, as we discussed, is the fact that you do have these possibilities of failure. I think failure is much a much bigger part of Call of Cthulhu. And this tends to lead to the game being less predictable. I think out of all of these, with the possible exception of Lamentations, 
Call of Cthulhu and Pop Cthulhu is a, a derivative of, of Call of Cthulhu, I think would lead to the least predictable outcomes. If I were sitting down running this at the gaming table, I'd expect to be much more surprised by the outcome. It would almost certainly end up heading somewhere I wasn't expecting. With Trail of Cthulhu and Cthulhu Dark, I think it would be much more predictable. As a GM, I'd be more in control of that because you know, I know I'd be able to put clue A, clue B, clue C, clue D, and they just you know, perhaps go in a, a straight line or a branching diagram. I know, you know that when they get to one of these, these clues, they just automatically get it. Obviously, yeah, like as you said with Cthulhu Dark, the, you know, the, the difference there is that combat is not an option. In Trail... You, know, you might have a few action scenes on the way there. In Cthulhu Dark, it's going to be much more about the slow revelations. It's going to be about seeing the horrors of what's happened to the miners in the mine and being slowly driven insane by that and perhaps you know, trying to get out of that situation alive. But yeah, ultimately facing your, your final horrible fate. With Lamentations, yeah, I, I'd expect it to be perhaps a bit like Pop Cthulhu, a slightly more light-hearted thing. You know, maybe not quite as combat-heavy as Pop Cthulhu would be, but you've got characters who've got magic, you've got characters who can do odd things. You're out there fundamentally, you know, maybe as murder hobos, but certainly you'd be out there to get the treasure and maybe coincidentally rescue the people you were hired to rescue. But the whole thing, you know, I, I'd expect to have more of an atmosphere of wacky hijinks. Wacky hijinks? Yeah. Wow. Because you're looking at semi-disposable characters, you're looking at a, a set of mechanics that rewards you for taking those risks to get that money that perhaps doesn't punish you in any way but sand-wise for letting the people die. As a result, I think it's going to end up being a much more sort of self-serving weird game. Yeah, I'd very much go along with what you've both said. I think we're talking about a lot of hypotheticals for these games and a lot of what you two have just said i think is very much based on your expectations for how that that game might go so quite a lot of the illustrations that you've given for the tone of the game i think that could appear in in other games depending who's playing it and who's running it i think structure wise some have more random elements in and some are more of a predictable progression is that what you sort yeah. of said yeah um, so I think that has an effect. But aside from that, I wouldn't really like to say how the Call of Cthulhu game might go compared to the others because I've played Call of Cthulhu with a lot of different people and they run it very differently, using still using the system, but what they bring to it is quite different. It can be quite serious and gritty. It can be quite silly and funny. It really depends on the person running it and how they decide to play it. And the system has an effect, but it's only part of the deal for me. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. And once again, it is time to thank those lovely, wonderful people who give us money. We have an account on Patreon, and if you back us there, you not only get our gratitude, but you do get a number of rewards. Uh, and 
Oh, yeah, obviously, one of these rewards is is personalised thanks at this stage. We also do our annual fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome. We release audio recordings, special audio recordings of stories. And there are a few other goodies there. So please take a look at Patreon if you want to know what some of these things are. And we have a few new backers. So to start off with, at the $1 level, we have a thanks to Volker Rattle. Thank you very much, Volker. Indeed. Thank you, Volker. And then we move on to the $5 level. Hang on, Rich, shouldn't there be something in the middle? I want to prolong the agony as much as <laughs> no, I can here. No, no, there's no buffer. We move straight on to the horror. Oh, fuck. Yes, at the $5 level, we get to sing to our backers. Sing, I say. And we've never sung yet. We've made noise. We try. That's all we do. One day we will achieve this we, goal. We are very trying, yes. <laughs> so our first song goes out to Chris Harvey. Well, thank you, Chris, and and we hope you um, enjoy this. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, brace yourself. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And our next victim, I mean Patreon, is Zachary Jenkins. So, thank you very much, Zachary. Yes, thank you, Zachary. Thank you, Zachary. Hope you like it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Zachary. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Zachary. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Zachary. Zachary Jenkins, Zachary, Zachary, Zachary Jenkins, Zachary, Zachary, Zachary Jenkins. Now let's take a look at what's going on on social media. We've had a recent iTunes review from a great handle on this one, Two Gun Mojo, two with a T U E. Uh, two Gun says. The Good Friends put out one of the best podcasts about horror gaming with a huge focus on Cthulhu RPGs. They discuss other games as well as other subjects from time to time, horror movies for example, though I'm partial to the Lovecraftian aspects myself. Regardless of the subject matter, this trio put thought into what they are saying and always keep me entertained. Check them out. Well, thank you very much to Gunnar. Actually, you've signed it, Jamie, so thank you very much, Jamie. Yeah, thanks very much. Indeed, thanks a lot. Yes, if any of the rest of you are motivated to review us on iTunes, we would be eternally grateful. Now, our recent episode about Ron Edwards's RPG Sorcerer prompted some discussion, including one from the man himself. Yes, uh, Ron contacted us on BlasphemousTomes.com uh, and basically corrected us on a few things that we got wrong in the episode. Uh, uh, yeah, specifically, I mean, this is you know, mere culpa. Yeah, my, my research failed a bit here. And I got uh, some of the facts about the early days of the Forge very, very badly wrong. Ron not only graciously corrected us on this, but gave us a, a really quite a good potted history of how all this got started. And so if this is of interest to you, do check out the comments for the episode on BlasphemousTomes.com. We also had a terrific comment from Judd Goswick on G+, um, who had a lot of ideas and observations about the game. One highlight was, 
Failed summons can mean the demon is aware of the sorcerer, but not forced to manifest for binding. Demons whose summons failed are now in the game space and aware of the character who called to them. It's always fun to have them show up later as free agents seeking to punish their would-be masters or seek a far more beneficial binding. And yeah, Judd had a lot of good insights and ideas for the game, so do check out that response thread on Google+, Plus if, if you're interested in more inspiration. And also over on G+, Gary Furash had something to say about the mini-supplements for Sorcerer. He says, Some of the supplements for Sorcerer, like Demon Cops or Schism, do a much better job of supporting traditional troop play. The former is a police procedural, and the latter is essentially the new deviant in brackets, from Chronicles of Darkness. So, yes, as, as our World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness expert, what, what does that actually mean, Matt? Deviant hasn't come out yet, and I've seen absolutely no material beyond it other than it's effectively you're playing Children of the Night, the RPG ripped out of cult. That's as much as information I've seen of it. Um, Deviant the Renegades hasn't yet been published. Effectively, you're playing Children of the Night. As yes. well, well, what, <laughs> what, what does that mean for our listeners who don't know cult? Uh, the premise behind Deviant, from the little that's been released that I've seen... Um, I gather by uh, Gary's comment there's been a bit more released on it somewhere, but I've just not seen it, is that you're effectively playing medical experiments gone wrong. You are people that have been subjected to bad shit TM that have then escaped your masters or tormentors and then got together and banded together to fight crime, by the sound of it, as he was saying. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. <laughs> And let's wrap up with a final thought about System Matters and just how much it does. One thing that I keep seeing in discussions, particularly about Call of Cthulhu and BRP, is this idea that systems should fade into the background. Do you agree with this? I mean, do you think that that is the goal of a system? And what the hell does that even mean? No, I wouldn't say it's a goal. It's nice when it happens, but I don't think it's inherently something that it strives to do. What do you think it means? What does that actually mean for you, Matt? It means that it's almost like a seamless flow, that you don't have to stop and then worry about, oh, hang on a minute, what does this rule do, or what, what does this power do, what, does this, what mechanics shall I use here? It's where it's just a seamless interaction with what you are doing at the game table, that there is no sudden, right, hold, stop, stop, let's consult the big, the big book, that it's all it's almost seamlessly integrated is how I put it, rather than fade into the background, because obviously when the dice come out, they are very much at the forefront, they're not in the background anymore. But it's yeah, just something that works and flows without interruption or disruption. Yeah, I think it seems like it could mean two different things when people say it. I think one is that it fades into the background and we stop using it, is, is what they're saying, and mm. we just make shit up. Which, if you're happy doing that, that's fine, but I would say you're not really playing the system anymore. I think the other more positive one is more like what you just, just described, Matt, where you become so fluent with the, the system, a bit like driving. You start learning driving and you're very conscious of it and you, you know, you're thinking about what you're doing with your hands and feet. But after a while, it just becomes second nature and you can hold a conversation and listen to the radio. And you know, running Call of Cthulhu, it's a bit like that. If you've become very conversant with it and your players likewise, then... You're using the mechanics, but you're no longer particularly conscious that you're having to use them. Yeah, I, I've always thought when I've seen this comment come up that it's less a factor of the system itself and more a reflection of the group's familiarity with the system. 
And of course, I mean, that familiarity will depend an awful lot on how easy it is to grasp in the first place. And I'm, I'm sure there are some systems, I mean, like Rollmaster, where even if you're familiar with it, you will have to stop play fairly regularly and look stuff up on tables. And that may not be fading into the background. There may be games like Dogs in the Vineyard, where even if you're familiar with it, you always then got this dice mechanic that then becomes a sort of mini game. And yeah, I think no matter how familiar you are with that, it does intrude somewhat. I, I guess it's where you stop playing and start talking about the rules. Yeah. Hmm. And can I do this? Can I do that within the rules? Which is where it sort of becomes a bit stilted. And I guess that can happen with any system to some degree. But do you think it's always a good thing for the mechanics to, to fade into the background? Well, what do you mean by the mechanics fade into the background, Scott? Well, based on what we've just said, that, that sort of familiarity where it's, you know, you're not stopping play to talk about it. So I'd say that inherently there are certain games where the mechanics will intrude. I mean, let's say, you know, it's like D&D 4th edition, you need a battle map. So at some point, play will stop, you'll sort of place miniatures on the, the board and you'll make tactical decisions. I mean, that, that, is, that, that is the very op- opposite for me of, of the system fading into the background. On the other hand, it's a selling point because it's fun to do yeah if it's fun to do and you're really conversant with it is it really slowing down play it's not really it's that's that's part of the fun of the game it's not yeah but no matter how fun you're finding it and no matter how familiar uh you are with it the system is very much not fading into the background there you are actively engaging with the system in that case then that would be the same for call of cthulhu i think you know you're making skill rolls uh you're deciding whether to push rolls you're you know making sanity rolls so the system is there i think it's that they require less time for you to suddenly think right this is what i need to do next that uh, with using that analogy using the battle map it's right i have got 360 degrees worth of choices i can make here depending on which route i want uh, which angle i want to put my miniature in what power i use what range it's got now i've got to whip out the dice now i've got to whip out the tape measure all of that stuff with thinking of the sanity check right i've just seen a monster i've made my sand check or i failed my sand check now i roll this dice to see how much i lo- um, see how much i lose vastly quicker and less intrusive. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, there are times where even playing Call of Cthulhu I, yeah, in 7th edition, you will have things where you, you stop and you make decisions. And they're maybe not tactical decisions like that. But say pushing a role, it's, you know, you sort of you step back out of the game yeah. and sort of think, right, you know, how, how am I going to angle this? What is my character doing in order to justify a second attempt? And that is, again, not the rules fading into the background. It's kind of a player making a choice, though. Rather, I'd say that choice is about the mechanic, but it's still them making a choice and debating within the context of the situation they find themselves in, rather than going from a list of choices they've got on a page in a rule book. Oh, but but it's still a mechanic that's not fading into the background. You're actively mm-hmm. engaging with the mechanic. Yeah, just it comes to the forefront in a different way in my mind. Yeah, I'd say the aspiration is to become very fluent with whatever mechanics you're using, such so that you can use them without them slowing down the flow of that game um obviously some mechanics are going to take longer than others but if you can use them proficiently in the way they're intended to be used and they then work well and you enjoy using them then great stuff yeah i mean for me very much i'm attracted to games where i don't have to look up stuff during play 
Um, you know, every now and then, I, I don't mind, you know, for example, stopping and, and looking at a, a table for um, bouts of insanity or something like that, because it's a rare thing and it does add something to the game. But if I'm having to stop fairly regularly and sort of think, oh, how does this spot rule work or you know, how does this interact with that or what's the range on this? And if I can't just carry all that stuff in my head as, as a GM, I, I find that profoundly irritating. This is why I go back to rule zero. I just asked the player, how do you want to flip out? Well, Ron would have you down as a narrativist then, Scott, because the complaint that a narrativist would make in his essay, he says that they would complain that system bogs down the game. Yeah, I thought the contrary, uh, you know, what people would complain about was quite a good uh, illustration of those things, just going back to where we started. Um, a gameist person would complain that something was unfair so they want a level playing field and you know they complain if the game felt unfair and he, he argues that a simulationist would argue that you know would be disappointed if the game was unrealistic or inaccurate to the the setting that it intended oh they're all wrong <laughs> and on that bombshell <laughs> we'll leave it there so it's a good night from me Cheerio from me and farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemoustomes.com. I have examined the maps of the city. I Mystery attracts mystery. Weird Whisperings. Brought to you by the good friends of Jackson Elias. The Outsider. By H.P. Lovecraft. Read by Paul Fricker. That night the Baron dreamt of many a woe, and all his warrior guests, with shade and form, of witch and demon and large coffin worm, were long be nightmared. Keats. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon the lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken, and yet... I am strangely content, and cling desperately to these seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages, and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp.